You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, good morning. Uh, Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. So we're going to be in uh, verse 17. That'll be our focus today. But to establish a little bit of context, I'd like to read the first 19 verses of the chapter. So it'll be a bit of an extended reading. So 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 19. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as exiles, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you and these things which now have been declared to you through those who proclaimed the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, having girded your minds for action, being sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your sojourn, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your feudal conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So I said we'll be focused on verse 17 this morning, but before we begin the exposition of that verse, I, I want to point out something about the book of First Peter that I think is interesting and, and needs to be kept in mind as you study through this. And Uh, I would recommend to you that you read this book. It's a fairly short book, and you'll see this for yourself. Peter starts out with 12 verses that detail what God has done for us to make us his children. The first 12 verses of of chapter 1 points out our election, our conversion, our sanctification, regeneration, our inheritance. He explains the process of sanctification, how we go through this life of trials, and it makes us more like Christ. He marvels at our faith without sight shares in the joy of our salvation. He he points out how the greatness of our salvation is the interest of the Holy Spirit himself in the inspiration of Scripture, how it was the interest of the apostles and the prophets, and is even today 
the interest of the angels. The angels long to look into it. And then in verse 13, the tone changes. Peter begins to issue commands. And even many of the phrases that are not technically commands have the, the force of a command. The first clear command in First Peter is given in verse 13. Look at that. Fix your hope. That's the first command. We're to focus and fasten our hope on the grace that is to be ours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're to concentrate on the return of Christ and the, the, re, the reward that will be ours at his return. Then the second command we looked at last time I preached. I'm sure you all remember that. It was verse 15. Be holy. That's the command in verse 15. We're called children of obedience. We're called by the Holy One. We are to be holy because we're in association with a God who is perfectly holy. We are to be holy because He is holy. And then in verse 17, we have the third command, and that's what we'll look at today. But just for fun, yeah, I counted the commands in 1 Peter. And it's not that easy to do because the the way that Peter uses language, but the as far as clear commands of Scripture, there's about 40 commands. And in chapter 1, there are only four. So the commands don't start until verse 13. So you can see that Peter kind of pivots from, from giving us indicatives, telling us about our salvation, to now these are commands, uh, things that we ought to do because of our salvation. So again, the third command in verse 17, we're first were to fix our hope, the second command was to be holy, and now we have the third Conduct yourselves in fear. But the verse begins with the phrase, and if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. If you address as father. That word address may seem a little bit formal to us, and some translations use call or invoke. Uh, I like address because it gives us the idea of of referring to God as our father, and that's the idea, that's the, the rationale for the command. Those of you that refer to God as father those who are children of obedience, those who, in other words, are Christians, then you you are addressing as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. And because of that, you are to live in fear of that impartial judgment. That's the structure of the verse. If we refer to the impartial judge of all the world as our Father, then we ought to live in a way that's consistent with that identification of that great judge as our Father. Uh, That's... That's the point of the verse. But why? And I'll spend most of the time on that question. Why would we, we who have God as our Father, need to fear Him as judge? Why would we, look at the verse, why would we have to fear Him as an impartial judge of works? The whole of the epistle until now has been about our salvation. Talked about our being chosen, our being regenerated, the rescue that we received from God. All of it. Even how he's begun the process of making us into the image of Jesus Christ. He even guarantees our promised inheritance. You see that. It's incorruptible, undefiled, unfading. We're protected by the power of God through faith. It's an indestructible, God-given faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed. It's ready. It's done. It's complete. It's, it's ready. So what do we have to fear? 1 John 4.18 says there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. The one who fears is not perfected in love. And Peter's telling us to fear. Proverbs 9.10, some of you may be thinking of. 
The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. But that's the beginning of wisdom. Right? We had That fear of God, isn't that the fear of God that we had at our conversion? It, that's the fear of God that when we first understood the depravity of the depth of our sin and the just judgment against it, we began to fear God, and in that moment, we reconciled to God through the gospel, through His Son, Jesus Christ. We repented of our sins and put our faith in Christ. That's the beginning of wisdom. We experience that fear, but we resolve the conflict. Why do we need to fear? We call him Father, and he is our Father, isn't he? This is Romans 8, 14 through 16. For as many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We are. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were born under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You're a child of God. Peter just called us children of obedience a couple verses ago. So we do call God our father because he is our father. We've been reconciled to him. We live a new relationship to him. We're no longer at enmity with him. We relate to him as children. So why would we conduct ourselves with fear? What's all this about judging? I thought we escaped judgment. Peter says, and if you address as father whom? The one who impartially judges according to each one's work. So this must be why we're to fear, at least in part. God will impartially judge our work. Our work is to be judged. But how? Didn't we escape judgment? (laughs) Didn't we escape the judgment of our deeds that would lead to condemnation? Yes, as Christians, yes. We've escaped judgment ending condemnation. Now, if you're not a Christian, you haven't. Uh, You haven't escaped that judgment. You have a lot to fear. You haven't even begun to fear. But if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, then that escape from, from judgment is yours. It's what John refers to when he says, perfect love casts out fear. This is the larger context of that, 1 John 4. This is 1 John 4, 14 through 18. We have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We've come to know and have believed the love which God has in us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this, love has been perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. That's John's point. We have no fear of the day of judgment, because he, Christ, because as he, Christ, is, so also are we in this world. We have no fear of that condemnation, that punishment, because of Christ. Because for the Christian, that judgment has been satisfied. That judgment of eternal damnation was covered by the blood of Christ. And we praise the Lord that's so. That's why we're here. So, still then, what is the judgment that we have to fear? I haven't answered that question yet. Certainly there is a... And I'm going to answer it three ways. I think they're all valid. 
obviously, or I wouldn't be answering in those ways. Okay. Certainly, there's a future judgment of every person that is based solely on works. So every person here and every person throughout the world, living or dead, there is a judgment of every person according to their works. The Bible speaks of four judgments of people, and some of you are in eschatology and you're going, so you may count them differently, that's fine, I'm not going into all of them, but there are four judgments of image bearers, there are additional judgments of Satan and demons, but there are four of humans. And of those four judgments, only one is a candidate of a future judgment for which Christians would have reason to fear. That's the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat judgment. It's referred to in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, according to what he has done. This is a judgment of Christians and of Christians only. It's evaluation of the life of the believer. This will be an evaluation of your use of the talents and time and resources and gifts that you've received. How did you use them? Whether for his glory or for your own ends, maybe even for sinful ends. This is a judgment, though, of reward. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3. According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will indicate it because it is revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But... Listen to this. He himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So this is a judgment of deeds, but the result is salvation for all and reward for some. Okay? So this is a judgment of Christians only. There's no indication of condemnation, only degrees of reward. There is a sense of loss, but salvation for all who undergo the judgment. Right? This is our judgment. This is the judgment that we will face. The one, that, the one that you and I as Christians alive today would undergo. So would it be appropriate to conduct ourselves in fear in light of that judgment? Oh, yeah. Yes. And there are other judgments uh, referred to in Scripture. I just mentioned the judgment of Israel, the judgment of the nations, the sheep-goat judgment, which I believe to be one, and then the great white throne judgment. But none of those would would fit the context of First Peter at all. So I, I'm not going to go into them. I just state them so you're not confused about those. There are other judgments where there is condemnation. I'm not talking about those. The only one that could be considered a motivation for holy conduct, for fearful conduct, for the believer, is that judgment seat of Christ. And uh, some commentators conclude that this is at least in part what Peter has in mind. This is from Robert Layton's commentary. If, this is a good quote. Quote, if you want to have confidence on that day and not fear it when it comes, fear it now so that you avoid sin. Those who tremble now will, when judgment comes, lift up their faces with joy. End quote. So I think it makes sense that that Peter has that judgment in view in the reward at the return of Christ is in view. Look back at verses 3 through 7. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see what Peter has in mind. Reward for a life well lived, for suffering well done, and that reward comes at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the return of Christ. Okay, So that's part of what we are to live in fear of. We are to conduct ourselves in fear of that impartial judgment. But there's a hint in the verb that's translated judges that there may be even more. The judgment seat of Christ may not be the only judgment that we have to fear. The verb is in the present tense. It indicates God is presently in the act of judging. You could translate it this way. And if you address this father, the one who is currently impartially judging according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear. So he is currently judging. Now you could think of that as judging now for this future recompense. So he is sort of recording and analyzing and evaluating deeds now in preparation for a future event. Um, but given the context of the rest of the book of First Peter, I think it, it refers not just to a future point of time, but to disciplines in this life now. God's discipline. If you were to Go forward a few chapters. First uh, Peter 4.17 says this, For it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? That's a good question. For our purposes, it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God, with us. It is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. He's talking about present judgment in the form of earthly discipline. It's a reality of our relationship to the Father. We should live in fear of that discipline. Remember the point of 1 Peter, written to Christians who are suffering, who are persecuted. He wants them to suffer for the right reasons. Remember? Our sanctifying life, the trials, should be painful, but painful for the right reasons. They should be sanctifying us. They shouldn't be just the, the, the right judgment against our sinful behaviors, right? He, he doesn't want us to suffer justly on this earth for our sin. He doesn't want us to suffer from, say, earthly rulers who actually rule justly and rightly and punish evil. Uh, we're, not to be, we're not to suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler, right? But we can suffer from rulers who don't rule rightly, who punish that kind of behavior. That's good. That's sanctifying behavior. All right. So that, that impartial judgment of God in discipline, I think, is partly in mind here. So not just the judgment seat of Christ, but also fear of earthly discipline. The chapter on earthly discipline is Hebrews 12. You think I should do it? Yeah, it'll be a couple years before he gets there, so I'll be all right. No. I'll just say, you know that, that, that God disciplines his children. He disciplines his erring children on this earth. And so we ought to live in fear of that. Uh, Grudem, Wayne Grudem puts it this way in his commentary in First Peter. Membership in God's family, 
great privilege though it is, must not lead to the presumption that disobedience will pass unnoticed or undisciplined. Sometimes God's discipline is direct, sometimes it's indirect, sometimes it's through the world, sometimes it's administered through the church. Matthew 18 gives us the process for church discipline. Addressing sin in the body, rooting it out. Uh, People can be handed over to Satan, taught not to blaspheme if they refuse to repent of their sins. They're excommunicated, expelled from the fellowship, from all the the grace that comes from being in fellowship with with the visible church. It's for their salvation, for their restoration. Sometimes, though, sadly, it's to show that they were not of us. But for those who would call on God as Father, those who would do that sincerely and reasonably, having put their faith in Christ, then church discipline is rare. It ought to be seen as the Father's discipline being exercised through His body and through those who are accountable for the health of the body. Okay, so there is judgment to fear. Judgment to fear from this impartial judge. Whether that's future judgment at the the judgment seat of Christ or current disciplines. Whether that's directly from the Father, through the church, through the world. And the judgment is impartial. You see that. He is the one who impartially judges. Uh, God judges impartially. He doesn't show partiality. The verb is kind of a long one. It, it has three components. It means not, the first part is not, the middle part receiving or taking, and the last part the face or the appearance. So you put it together, it, is someone, it's, it means not receiving or, or taking someone based on their outward appearance not judging them on that basis. That's what it means to be impartial here. So God doesn't judge by anything other than the the merit or the culpability of the deeds themselves and the motivation behind it. You can't impress him. Uh, God God judges your actual thoughts, your actual deeds. Uh, There's no errors of memory or lack of evidence. There's no mistake. It's clear. It's unambiguous, unfailing without bias. Example this is from Samuel. Samuel was sent to anoint David as king. Do you remember that? He went into the house of Jesse, and he saw Eliab, and he's getting the oil out. I guess because Eliab's the tallest or the best looking or whatever. Uh, that's how we select elders here at uh, Kootenai. <laughs> but, but, is Jess here today? No. Okay. Uh, God tells Samuel... Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You've heard that verse before. The Lord looks at the heart. He's not impressed, right? He's not impressed by Lab's height or your height. Uh, even Brian Ashby or Joe Cordes, he's not even impressed by their height, although I am. I'm uncomfortable anytime I'm next to someone taller than me. He's not. He's not impressed by your looks, your abilities, your clothing, your money, your bank account, your cars, your job, your position. None of it. God will judge your deeds and the motivation of the heart that brings those deeds to pass. He judges impartially according to each one work, each one's work. Now, as a bit of an aside, because of things going on in the world today, we have to be clear about something. This is an attribute of God that we as his image bearers are to reflect. We're to be impartial too. We're not to judge according uh, to outward appearances. That precludes us from being racist or sexist or classist in the way that those words have historically been defined. There is today a, a, a distortion of those ideas, 
and we reject those insane and illogical and dangerous and Marxist ways of redefining those words. But we do not see people as more or less valuable. We don't evaluate their actions or their character based on outward characteristics. Meaning, meaningless ones, utterly meaningless ones like race or meaningful ones like ethnicity or gender. We, we don't value the world. We don't value people the way the world does. And we, we reject all of those concepts of value. In the mind of God, all human beings are image bearers and deserve that dignity. Right? The, the only distinction that God makes is between worldlings and his elect. And we can make that distinction. He loves his elect in a different way than worldlings. But within those two classes, he makes no distinction among race or gender or any of those, those outward characteristics. There may be distinctions in role in, gen, in the case of gender, but no distinction in value. Christ has purchased with his blood people from every tribe and tongue and nation. God is impartial. Now, in particular, in this context, he doesn't judge our sins differently because we're his children. He poured out his wrath on his son because of those sins without discount, without restraint. He paid the full penalty for our sins. And, and his discipline will be the same. There's no difference among his children when it comes to the discipline of God. And there's not less, no less discipline because he likes you more or more because he likes you less. God is an impartial judge. That makes his judgment absolutely certain. There's no way around it. Now, you kids, you have fathers. And you know every way there might be to get around their judgment and their discipline, right? It, because it's not impossible to do so. They can be, they can lack knowledge for one thing, they may not know. And they can be inconsistent. Right? They can have rules that are rules one day and then the next day the rules are different. And every kid will say that the rules got different from the oldest kid to the youngest kid. Right? They got loosened up. And I know none of you believe that that's one way that human fathers can be inconsistent. Earthly fathers can also be partial, can't they? They can play favorites. Now, I know none of you believe that you're the favorite, right? That's always, it's always somebody else was the favorite. That's unfair. In truth, good parents don't play favorites. Good parents, there, there may be differences in the way that they feel about their children, but those, those differences are, are, they don't matter, uh, because they love their children all so deeply. I say that out loud for the children to hear. But we know from the Bible that there are parents who are partial, who play favorites. Remember Jacob and Esau. And then you remember Jacob with his kids, with Joseph and Benjamin and the rest of the kids. So clearly there are parents who do that. And so one might hope to escape judgment, either because the rules become inconsistent, or because the father doesn't know, or because he likes me better. Not so with God. Not so with him. The discipline is certain, it's appropriate to the totality of the circumstance and even to the motivation of the heart. God looks at the heart. No mistakes, no shading the truth. There's something else we're to fear. We're to fear the judgment seat of Christ. We're to fear earthly discipline. But there's something else, and I think it's probably even more important. What have we to fear the most? Isn't it just displeasing our Father? When we even just begin to understand this one 
whom we call Father and what he has done for us, the most horrifying and sickening thought is that we might displease him. Alistair Begg tells a story of a, of a young boy. I don't know if it's a true story. I don't, I don't know. I'm not, and I'm not plagiarizing. This wasn't about getting a driver's license. Alistair Begg, he tells a story of a, of a young boy who refused to go along with the crowd and do some sort of mischief. Uh, something he'd been told by his father not to do. And the boy said something like, or the, the other boys around him, you know, trying to get him to do it. And they said, oh, he's just afraid his father will hurt him. And the boy's response was, no, I don't want to hurt my father. Thought, oh, that captures it. He did it with a, a Scottish accent, and it was even better. But, but you, get, you get the point. Love for the Father characterizes the Christian. We are children of obedience. We want to glorify Him. We don't want to bring a reproach against Him. We want to please Him. We don't want to grieve Him. We want the angels and observers to see Him as He is through us. We don't want to see don't them to see our failures as his image bearers. It's not what we want to see. But most importantly, we don't want him to see us act unlovingly or disrespectfully, irreverently toward him, rebelliously toward him. Not now. Not now. Not after what he's done for us. Not after what he's done for people we love. We won't offend him. We won't do it. Don't do it. This fear of offending God, it doesn't make us cowards. It makes us courageous. It makes us brave. It's the other side of the coin. It's, this is the bravery against the attacks of the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's the fear of offending God. That's our only fear. We don't fear offending anyone else in the universe. Only God. We live in submission to governing authorities. Why? Because in doing so, we live in submission to Him. Children, you obey your parents. Why? Because in doing so, you obey God. That's why. Even when they're inconsistent and and partial. Wives, you submit yourself to your husbands. Because in doing so, you obey God. Even when your husband is less than perfectly loving, even when he is a pagan, as we'll see later on, husbands, you love and sacrifice for your wives because in doing so, you obey your father. Even when she is not submissive. Servants, workers, employees, you obey your masters because in doing so, you obey God. We'll see that when we get to chapter 2 of First Peter, we're to honor all people. We're to honor the king, honor human authority. We'll live in full submission to human authority so long as our obedience to that authority does not mean disobedience to the master. I've said this before. I don't think from the pulpit, so I can say it again. Christians are to be the meekest, lowliest, most submissive, humble, graceful, merciful people on the planet right up until we're asked to disobey our master. And then we are the most rebellious, the most hard-headed people on the planet. We will set our faces like flint. Now, we remain graceful and merciful and evangelical, but we won't bend. We won't budge. Not one bit, not one iota, if it means obeying our master. Won't do it. Lastly, verse 17 tells us to conduct ourselves in fear when? I said lastly, but that doesn't mean it. we're right at the end, just so you know. Don't start zipping up the Bible cover yet. 
Verse 17 tells us to conduct ourselves in fear when? During the time of your stay on earth or during the time of your sojourn. The word for sojourn or stay on earth, it's parochia. And you may have heard the, the word parochial. Our English word parochial comes from that. The word, our word parochial has a lot of meanings, but one of the meanings is somewhat strange. It means that you're sort of insulated or disconnected from the larger world. You're, you're narrow-minded. And that's good. Right? That's, a, that's, a, that's a good description of it. Uh, it isn't related to the word that's translated exiles, aliens, or strangers, or sometimes sojourners back in verse 1. It says you are exiles to the exiles. But it carries forward the same idea. We, we, we do belong here because we've been placed here, but we don't belong here. We don't fit in. Right? This, the world as it's currently constituted, it's not for us. It's an open submission, open uh, rebellion to him, not in submission to him, even to the point of denying his existence. Ridiculous. And so the world hates him. The world hates the Savior, hates our Father. Of course, has to because of the love of sin. And, and so it hates us. And there's no surprise. We're just, we're just passing through. But while we're passing through, we have to live our lives in fear of judgment, fear of his judgment, his discipline, his displeasure. We have to continue to live in fear of offending the Holy One who called us. In other words, we have to live his way. We have to live his way according to his word so that we might bring more disciples, more children of obedience to him. Peter goes on in verses 18 and 19, gives us another reason to live in obedience to God. I just want to read those to you today. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your sojourn, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your feudal conduct inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You were redeemed from your slavery to sin at an incredibly high price. The suffering and death of the God who was man, your Lord and Savior, your King, he died so that you might live. He was mocked and beaten so that you might live. We will not offend him. Amen? We dare not. We will not. So today I want to summarize this with a, you're wondering, where is he going to get to the title? I, the, I used as the title a Latin phrase, "corum Deo." You may have heard that phrase. It, it, it literally means "before God." Um, it, it has the idea of the presence of God. Like when we speak of living our lives "corum Deo," it means that you live your life in awareness and appreciation of the fact that God sees everything that you do. You always and ever live in His presence. All of your thoughts, all your conduct. It's to conduct yourselves in fear. It's an antidote to hypocrisy. It's a call to integrity. So whatever we do, wherever we go, whatever we think, we're to do and go and think quorum Deo, in the presence of God. We must understand that we're always in his presence, in his awareness, his perception. He can't be hidden from. He can't be ran away from. He can't be tricked or deceived. He sees. He hears. He knows. There's nowhere to go. You can't be free from the gaze of this impartial judge. Uh, where would you go? 
Bavink, in his Doctrine of God, this is his quote, There is no place where you may flee from God angry, but to God reconciled. There's no place at all whither you may flee. Will you flee from him? Flee unto him. That's the answer. If you want to be free from the gaze of an angry God, deal with his anger. Be reconciled to him. So to flee to him is first to repent of your sins to be saved. To repent of your sins, put your faith in Christ. And then it is to live for him daily. To live in transparency, authenticity toward him. It's to live in fear during the time of your sojourn. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.